Are we ready to get started? Over the last couple of weeks, we've been in a series called The Emmaus Road, and what we're doing is we're looking to find Christ in the Old Testament. Really, that is our goal. Because we as New Testament believers, especially growing up the way that all of us have grown up here in America, have a different outlook and understanding of what the Scriptures are and what our Bible is. And so we miss out on a lot of the nuances and the things that are coming up. Yes, a lot of us understand the prophetic sense. We see the prophecies of Christ, but we don't really know how much this book revolves around Jesus Christ. Every page he's on. Every page. I've told people before, I've said it for years, that if you get into an Old, passage, you know, an Old Testament passage that perhaps you don't understand, um, put Jesus in there. Put Him in the middle of it. And a lot of times, it'll bring some clarity to what's going on. And so, the Emmaus Road is, is the passage out of Luke after Jesus is resurrected and He's brought back and, and He's there and He shows up and there's two guys that are walking along and He goes up and says, hey, what's going on? You know, and they're surprised, like, where have you been? How do you not know what's going on? The guy that we were hoping was the Messiah, they executed. And so from there, he begins to open up the Scriptures to them and show them where he was in the Old Testament. And so that's what we're going to do. Now, with this, we have to be very careful because I don't want to make this too academic. I don't want it to become that you're, to feel like you're sitting through a, a seminary lesson. That's not our goal here. Our goal here is to whet your appetite. I don't ever want you to feel like you're trying to get a drink of water from a fire hose. And so to the academic side of stuff, they come up with weird fancy names for all sorts of different things, basically attempting to make it as complicated as, as possible. And we don't want to do that. We want to simplify the scriptures. But we need to have an understanding of the overall theme. And that is what we talked about last week, was how the, the Old Testament and even the New Testament, we went through that as well, but, but specifically the Old Testament, how it breaks down and how we can look at these books. And when you get that, when you see that, it begins to make a lot more sense. There are historical books, there's poetic books, or the wisdom literature, and there's also the prophetic books. And there's things that are specifically designed, and they point towards things. Or you see the salvation history, and that's what we talked about, is that the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, is all about the redemption of mankind through Jesus Christ. And so a couple weeks ago, I showed you these pictures. You see them up on the screen. And, and what looks like a pile of garbage, when you shine the light on it, you see this great artwork. It's called shadow art. Again with the next one, just a bunch of stuff randomly sitting there. Doesn't make a lot of sense, but when you shine the light on it, it all comes together and, it, and you begin to understand why it's there. You take away that light, it looks like a bunch of individual pieces, there's no rhyme or reason for any of it, but when the light's on it, it all makes sense. It was designed to be put there, it was strategically placed and so as we continue into this, we're going to look at some different aspects. Now, I'll tell you is that what I prepared for today is going to be a little longer than normal, but it's going to be shorter than what it should have been. And I'll tell you why is as I was putting this together, I was really planning on going a lot further than what I'm going to today. And as I got into this, I realized there's no way we're going to get this done in, in the course of a single day. There's just way too much information, and I don't want to leave anything behind. I want you to appreciate how incredibly designed that your Bible is. It's just incredible. It is, it is every letter, every number, every name is strategically placed there by the Holy Spirit. And as I said before, when we get done with this, you are going to have an appreciation for scriptures like you've never had before. And so as we, we continue on with this series that we're going to look at today is some different aspect of Jesus and some different things that perhaps 
we've not really thought of, or at least not in depth. And so when we look at some of the offices that Jesus not only held, but that point to him, we look at three in the Old Testament that were very significant. We know that God's redemptive work, it began before Adam sinned. And as a matter of fact, it began before he was even created. And it's continued throughout history. It's all about him. You see through in all of his salvation history and repeated in the Bible's teaching that man learns through his experience. You see that time and time again. And that the person will grow stronger through adversity and with a proper mindset, it'll draw them closer to God. You, you, you see this all throughout the Old Testament. They go through difficult times, but in the end, it draws them in closer to God. God doesn't lead us around conflict. He gives us the strength and carries us through it. And so, while Christ's crowning redemptive act was a sacrificial death and resurrection, and those are the crux of salvation history, they're not the entire story. That's part of it, it's a big part of it, but it's not all of it. And to fully understand the totality and the significance of Christ's redemptive activities in history, we have to view His work in what we call a systematic manner. Now, if you go into a lot of pastor's offices, a lot, especially your, your mainline denominations, you'll walk in there, you'll see a series of books titled Systematic Theology. It's, it's almost a given. Anybody who ever goes to seminary gets a systematic theology um, series from that school that has to do with whatever denomination they happen to be in. Now, I don't have one specifically, or at least not one on my bookshelf. Um, I definitely have some church history and things like that and some of the theological stuff. I have mine on the computer. But there's something interesting that always seems to be missing in these systematic theologies. And it has to do with Israel. The nation of Israel. The significance of Israel and why God chose these people. They, they, they underplay that significantly. And the reason for that is because a lot of your mainline denominations believe that the church has somehow replaced Israel. That everything there was just a foreshadow to get to the church. Now Israel is of no significance and no importance. And I cannot stress it enough, that is not correct. The Bible's very clear. And what we have to do to understand it is take off our, our blinders and our filters to the things that um, we just tend to, we, we read everything through. We, be, we think we understand it, and so we, we just jump right through it. And so, moving on from there, we've got to look at Christ's work through the prism of His offices. This, the three offices we're talking about are the offices of the prophet, of the priest, and the king. There's three of them. You see them in the Old Testament, and of course you see them with Christ as well, and we're going to look at that. So the prophet, which began with Moses, communicates God's message to the people. It's really that simple. It's one who communicates the message of God. Now, there's two parts of that. We always think a prophet is prophetic. In other words, we're predicting the future. But really, the definition of this is just one who proclaims the message of God. So anytime somebody gets up and, and reads the word out loud, technically, they are prophesying. Why? Because this is the word of God, the will of God. The second one, being the priest, the priest acts as an intermediary and offers the sacrifices and prayers to God for the people. Now remember, we're thinking Old Testament here. We're going back. And this began with Aaron. It was from the line of Aaron, the Levitical priesthood, that all the priests came. They had to be out of the bloodline of Aaron. And that's significant, but we're not going into that today. So they're a go-between. 
there's somebody who, who intercedes between man and God. And we'll go into that in a little more detail here shortly. And of course, the last one would be the king. And we know what a king is. He's one who rules over the people. And there were several kings, but David best exemplified the example of what a king should be like. While he wasn't perfect, he certainly had the heart of God. And so all three of these offices are very distinct in nature and by design. They are very isolated. They have a specific role and a purpose. And there, But there are a few people who served in more than one function, but that is most definitely the exception and not the rule. For the most part, people walked in one office or another. Very few times did they, they cross over. So let's look at this idea of the prophet and what he is. Now, we know what prophets were in the Old Testament, and we see them through the entirety of the Old Testament. A prophet was someone who was a voice of God. He told the people what God wanted and what he had to say to the people. Moses was a prophet. This is not new stuff. You guys all know this. He was the voice of God for Israel. And so he was the one that brought down the Ten Commandments. He was the one that, that really basically cut the covenant on behalf of Israel. Israel accepted it, but the Mosaic Covenant, he's the one that was there. And he constantly would proclaim the word of the Lord to them. And they would go to Moses and say, tell God to do this, please, or we need this, or we want that. And he would intermediate. He would go between them, but he was the voice of God. And so towards the end of his life, he makes a prophecy to the people and was something that they waited for for a very long time. Flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 18. We're going to start at verse 15. And we're going to read just a couple of verses, but I want you to see something here. Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, whom you shall hear according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command. This passage shows God telling Moses that another prophet just like him will arrive later. It doesn't say when, it just says that he will come and this is very significant. Now this does not tell us who that prophet is. And if you just quickly read through this, you're not going to pick up that this is referring to Jesus. But when you put everything in context and you read the whole of it, you begin to see it come to fruition. It was based on this promise that the Israelites were waiting on God to raise up a prophet who will be just like Moses, but much greater because this prophet will be the one to deliver Israel into a new era, the one where they rule and reign. That's what they're waiting on. And so it's in Hebrews 3 that we actually begin to see who this prophet is and who they've been waiting on. Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him, who appointed him as Moses also was faithful in all his house. You see, they're starting to tie these two together. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast to the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. You see, this passage is com just comparing Jesus and Moses. 
And it's differentiating the two. And it's showing us that Jesus was the one that they were waiting on. The significance of Moses can't be underplayed. But Jesus was greater, and that is what they're showing. Now, to say that Jesus was a prophet is a true statement, but a lot of times we don't like to look at it like that because we feel like we're underplaying His significance as the Son of God. But that's not the case. There are dozens of verses all throughout the New Testament showing that Jesus was a prophet. And we're just going to look at a couple of them. In Luke 4 and 24, it says, Then He said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. He's referring to himself after he goes home. And he couldn't do very many miracles because there was just no belief. They're like, no, 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 no. That's just the carpenter's son. No, 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 no. He's nothing special. And in Luke 13, 33, Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. Contextually speaking, he's speaking of himself. And so, while we all say that we, we know that he was a prophet per se, we don't like to think of him in that mindset because he is the Son of God. He's greater than a prophet. Well, of course he is. And so we always think of a prophet as someone who simply predicts the future. But that's not always the case. You've got to remember that a prophet is one who communicates God's message to the people. Now, based off of those two definitions, in both cases, Jesus was most definitely a prophet in the fact that he proclaimed the very message of God, the very word of God, and the fact that there are predictive things in future events going to take place based on what he taught. So he was the same in, in, in that aspect, but yet he was different. Because with Jesus, he didn't just speak on God's behalf like all the other prophets. The other prophets would receive a message from the Lord, and then they would just simply regurgitate, recite what they were told. But, but Jesus was different in the fact that he is God. He's not only speaking for the Father, but he's also speaking for himself. Look at Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1 and verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory in the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as He has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Again, this is showing the difference between just a regular old prophet and the Son of God who came. It's significant. We need to understand that Jesus was a prophet. Yes, He was the Son of God, but He was a prophet, and He was a prophet that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy. He was the prophet. Now, that's significant. Why is that significant? Because you've got to go back at least a thousand years to get back to the writings of Deuteronomy before Christ showed up on the scene. And yet you see the continuity between not only the New Testament and the Old Testament, but just they're written by different people. It's not like you could just make this stuff up. People aren't that smart. But yet you see this string all the way throughout showing that this is a supernatural book. So the office of the prophet, significance, no doubt. We see what's going on. We see how Jesus fulfilled that. But what about priest? We've got to remember that priests served as the function of representing men in their relations with God, and they offered gifts and sacrifice for sins. 
All the priests came from the line of Aaron, and they had many duties and requirements in order to perform the sacrifices correctly. It was very detailed on how they had to do things. And what they would do was mediate between God and the people. They had to do things in order to do that because your average person could not be in the presence of God. In actuality, only the high priest one time of year could enter into the presence of God. And it was a ritual that he had to go through to be ceremonially cleansed in order to do it. The priests were incapable of making any lasting sacrifices due to their own weaknesses, which necessitated the fact that they had to make sacrifices for their own sins as well. So there was no perfect offering that could be made that, that would satisfy the requirements for justice that God had. And you see this in Hebrews 10 and verse 4. It says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. It's not possible. It's pretty clear. It's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. You had imperfect people providing imperfect sacrifices. But all of these things pointed to Christ. And this is what separates Jesus from the other priests. Is Jesus fulfilled two things in his role as the priest, as the high priest. Is one, he was the perfect offerer. He had no weakness. All the other priests had to sacrifice for their own weaknesses and sins prior to doing anything for the others. But Jesus didn't have to do that. He was the perfect offerer. But he was also the perfect offering. He was the spotless Lamb of God. And we'll expand on that a little bit more later. But, but he was the ultimate sacrifice given for all mankind. He was the perfect offerer and the perfect offering. Look at a little further down in Hebrews 10, at verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, referring to Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstools, footstool, for by one offering he was perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Christ's sacrifice satisfied God's wrath, and we are forgiven and liberated from sin because of it. We are restored into an intimate fellowship with God. But here's the thing. Christ's priestly work didn't end at the cross. Hebrews 7, flip over there. Hebrews 7 and verse 24. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. This passage is differentiating Jesus from every other priest that was out there, from all the other high priests, because Jesus was the high priest. They offered sacrifices in their weakness, but Christ, He did it in His greatness. He was the perfect offerer and the perfect offering. Flip to Hebrews 9. 
Starting in verse 23, Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but that the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not itself, now to, oh, I'm sorry, not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Again, this is showing Christ's perfect sacrifice, but who is it for? It was for us. Now we keep reading in Hebrews, and why do we do this? I'll give you a hint. Do you know who the book of Hebrews was written to? It was to the Hebrews. Yeah, yeah, I know. Shocker, right? You didn't know I did. You, you missed out on that. It was written to the Hebrews, the Israelites. Why does it talk so much about the old system versus the new system in the book of Hebrews? Because they were extremely familiar with the old system. They knew it. They understood it. And they lived by it. But now there's a new system. And that's what the writer of Hebrews, we assume that it is Paul, is differentiating. He's saying, yes, you did this, but this wasn't enough. And that's why Christ came. He came. He was the perfect offerer. He was the perfect offering. And, and when you understand that mindset, when you read the book of Hebrews, then it will clear up a lot of theological discrepancies. Because there's so much that's taken out of there that gets taken out of context. And we've got to read it as a whole. And part of the whole of the book of Hebrews is going back to the Old Testament. What we need to know as Christ is our priest is that He was the perfect sacrifice for us in both being the offerer and the offering and that He is constantly making intercession for us. Romans 8.34, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. 1 John 2, verse 1, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. You see Jesus interceding on our behalf. We have an advocate with the Father. Christ's work was not finished at the cross. The full redemption of mankind has not taken place yet. He is the intermediary. He is still acting as the high priest on our behalf. And Hebrew 5 breaks down the complete difference between the Levitical priesthood that came from the line of Aaron... And from Jesus, flip over there, Hebrews 5. We're going to start in verse 1, but you need to see this. Hebrews 5 and verse 1, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. 
So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is a very significant individual and there's a lot in there that we don't have time for today. But look at that. It was God who put him there and says, you are a priest forever. That's my Sandlot impression, forever. Not for a time, but forever. He's still acting as that high priest on our behalf. We have an intermediary between God and the Father. But you can see how Christ fulfilled the office of the priest. But what about the king? We've talked about the prophet. We can clearly see how Christ fulfilled that. We just finished talking about the priest, and we can clearly see how Christ fulfilled that. But what about the king? How is Christ the king? Well, in order to understand it, we've got to go back to a promise that was made to King David. And that promise was that someone would sit on his throne that was from his bloodline for eternity. That this person would rule and reign forever. And we call this the Davidic covenant, and, and, and that's, again, your, your, your super smart theological people putting big fancy words on things. In other words, it's the covenant that was cut with David, that God promised David. You see this in a couple of places, um, well, several places, really, but just a couple we're going to look at. The first one being in Psalms 132, and we're going to start at verse 11. It says, the Lord, Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. If your son keeps my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their son shall also sit upon your throne forevermore. And in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, When your days are fulfilled and your rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, the Davidic covenant, which is something we'll discuss uh, later because we're going to talk about all these covenants that were going on, was basically a promise to David that someone from his lineage would sit on the throne forever. Now, ultimately, we know this is referring to Christ, but it's not clear right here. There's nothing in here that says this will be the Son of God, the Messiah. It doesn't say that specifically. All we know is that as far as the king goes... And the promise that God made from David is that somebody from his lineage will sit on that throne and rule and reign for all of eternity. So how do we know that Christ fulfilled this? Let's look at Romans 1. Romans 1 and verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Now this is significant because in order for Christ to, to be um, this forever ruling king promised to David in the Davidic covenant, he has to be from the seed of David. He has to be in that lineage. Look at 2 Timothy 2.8. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Now these don't tell us 
that Jesus was this king. It just simply means that he meets the criteria to be the king. That's it. In order for Jesus to fulfill this, he has to first and foremost meet that criteria. He has to come from the line of David. Now look at John 18. John 18, starting in verse 33, we're going to see something here. Because in order for Jesus to be king, he's got to say, I am this king. So we're going to start in John 18, verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. In order to have a kingdom, one has to be a king. You can't have one without the other. A king has a kingdom. What is Jesus saying? I am the king of the Jews. I am. I'm I'm the king, the everlasting king that was promised for all time. Christ is the perfect and everlasting king of all creation. Those who came before him were imperfect. They were mortal. They, they, They didn't have everlasting life in that sense. And no matter how much they achieved, it didn't amount to what Christ has done. Solomon was the wisest man in all the world. But yet Christ is wisdom. He was the one who ultimately answered Solomon's prayer for wisdom. And David, he was a man after God's own heart. But Christ is God. They can't measure up. You can see very clearly how Christ fulfilled all of these different things. The the offices, they all pointed to Jesus. But you have to be able to see that through hindsight, because if they're living through it, they won't recognize it. It is significant. I mean, just even talking about the kingship and the Davidic covenant and all of those things, and we'll talk about this later, but it is very significant how I believe it is in Matthew when it talks about the genealogy, that it says that Jesus was the son of Mary. That was unheard of, because they wanted to show what their line was. They always refer to the father. But why was it significant? Because Mary came from the lineage of David. It's significant. You can't miss this. You have to understand this. And again, this is just one more thing showing how awesome our Bible is. It's incredible. So let's move on from there because we got a couple more things we want to talk about. Let's talk about the creation account real quick. Now, we've talked about this, and so I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail, but, but last year in our Worldview series, and of course the Holy Spirit series, we wanted to show how it wasn't just the Father that did creation. And that's what we think. I mean, any time in the Old Testament we see the mention of God, we instantly thank Father. And so the creation account is no different. Now, in Genesis uh, 1 and verse 2, you see the Spirit hovering over the water. So like, okay, well, there's Father and the Holy Spirit, but we don't see the Son mentioned. 
But Paul shows us that Jesus was an equal co-creator in, in, in 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Where are all things? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Where do they exist? Through Jesus Christ. John 1 and verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In Colossians 1 verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What do we see here? Jesus was in creation. At the very beginning, you know, this may seem like a, a, a minute detail at this point with everything else we're showing, but what you need to understand is looking at all of this is that Jesus was at the very beginning. He was not created. He is God. And He is on the very first verse of the Bible all the way through the last. Everything points to Him. And so, as we talked about before, the theme of the Bible is really is this, is God's redemptive work for mankind. And Christ is the key that unlocks all of the mysteries of the Old Testament. It's not speculation nor hyperbole, but to say that all Scripture centers on the very person of Jesus Christ. But in the Bible, and especially you see it in the Old Testament, God will use what we call word pictures, which are these metaphoric ways of describing these spiritual concepts, because He knows this visualization they can enhance our understanding. And you see Jesus even do it. He did it with, with the parables and stuff. It gives us an, a way to understand maybe something that is complex. But there is one Christ-centered theme that's throughout the entire Bible, and then we're all familiar with this. We talk about it, especially every Easter. It's the Lamb of God. And so to understand how this concept came to be and how God used this, is we have to understand that God will use something to reveal His truth to us through a term that's called progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. What this is, is where God will reveal in Scripture His message and plan for humanity in stages. Now sometimes we see this and we'll call it a type or a shadow, which is, which is very accurate in a lot of ways, but it's even bigger than that. Because basically what we have is a murky picture of something that becomes clearer as time passes or you might call it a mosaic which is what we've been talking about how we we're connecting all the dots or we're following the breadcrumbs if you will that God laid out for us to find there's nothing in there that just says you know here's how it's going to be it's in three verses here's here's the bottom line you have these little things that all point to Christ to the redemption of mankind they're all there you have to see them um, in order to understand it but this lamb of God idea is not something that came to be in the New Testament. The idea of the Lamb of God starts all the way back at the very beginning. And we're going to pick this idea up with, with, in Genesis 4 with the story of Cain and Abel. Now what I'm going to do in this first part is I'm going to show in this very first segment of how from beginning to end this whole part is referring to Christ. But the next ones I'm not going to do that. But I just want to show you how this works. Because you could do this every step of the way. Okay? So let's read Genesis chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1. This is the story of Cain and Abel. 
It says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desires is for you. But you should rule over it. Now, when we look at this story, there's nothing in here that that just jumps off the page. Ah, that's Jesus. I see it. Right? Well, you got to dig a little deeper because there are two things that are wrong with what Cain did, and one of them is very obvious because we know uh, the future events that are coming. Again, we're reading all of this in hindsight. Cain's offering was of the fruit of the ground, which was beautiful, but it was bloodless. You see later on that, that bringing um, the, the grain offerings and things like that was acceptable. There was a time for that. But, but that God ultimately requires blood sacrifice. Abel, differentiating from Cain, offered the firstborn of the flock and their fat portions. Now, that fat that it's mentioning is a Hebrew metaphor and basically refers to the best or the choice piece or, or however you want to say it, okay? So it's not like they're just scooping out animal fat, okay? It's, it's, it's referring to the absolute best that they have. Abel's offering was a blood offering. And that was the best that he had to offer. He brought his best. But there's another piece to the puzzle here that a lot of times gets overlooked. And you see it in verse 3. Now again, I, I, I say this often. We have to read our Bible very slowly and chew on every word because we go so quickly and assume we know what it's saying that we miss out on these little nuances. But in verse 3, here's what it says. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering an offering of the fruit of the ground of the Lord. It says it was in the process of time and that it was an offering. Now, why is this important and how does it point to Christ? It's because of hindsight that we can see this pointing to the Messiah. In Romans 11 and verse 16, it says, For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Hebrews 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better better things than that of Abel. What do we see? We're talking about Jesus here. It's comparing Abel and what happened there with what Jesus did. You see the firstborn of, and you see the whole idea of, of the blood and the difference of the new covenant. Romans 8 and 29, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, referring to Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. One more. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the 
first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. You see, what this is showing us is that, and what Cain did wrong, is one, we need a blood offering. And we're going to see this idea build and progress from here. But also, it's of the first fruits. And it refers to Jesus as the first fruit offering. Now, what is that? Without going into too much detail, when somebody brings the first fruit, whether it be the first uh, harvest of crops or the first born from a herd of animals, whatever it is, you don't know if that land will produce again or not. You're bringing the first and the best in. You don't know if something's going to go wrong. You don't know if that animal will ever have another child. But because you're living in faith that God is the one who meets your needs, you bring Him your best and your first. That is called living by faith. What Cain did, is what this is implying, is that after some time had passed and he reaped in all the harvest, he just brought an offering. It doesn't say it was his best, and it most certainly doesn't say it was his first. He brought what he had. In other words, oh man, I just, I just made a million dollars. Yeah, I guess I got a few bucks I can throw in the offering plate now. I mean, that is what it's implying, which is the opposite of what Jesus is, because Jesus was God's best, and he was God's first. You see how those tie together? You see how that completes that picture? I did this one for you, but let's look at this whole idea of the Lamb of God and how it progresses throughout the story. Let's look at this story of Abraham and Isaac. God tells Abraham to take Isaac on this hill and sacrifice him. And Abraham is being obedient and does what he says. He lays Isaac up on the altar, and right before he goes through with it, the Lord stops him. In Genesis 22 and verse 13 is where we see this. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Now this shows us something significant about the sacrifice. First of all, how did Abraham walk in faith to sacrifice his son? Because this is a foreign concept to us. How did he do it? How did he go through with it? Well, it's very simple. God had promised Abraham that Isaac would have children. And for God's word to be true, that means that even if Abraham sacrificed him, he knew that God was going to raise him from the dead. He had to. Otherwise, he just made himself out to be a liar. And we know that's not possible. But this is where we see the, the emphasis shift from just the necessity of the lamb. That there must be one to be sacrificed. But this shows us that it's God's provision of the lamb. God's going to provide the lamb. So you can see how the picture and the concept of the sacrifice in the lamb, while it's still murky, is getting a little bit brighter. We start seeing these things in these stages. The next one. In Exodus 12, God instructs all His people to slay a lamb without blemish and put some of its blood outside of the doors. This is dealing with um, 
the ten plagues that happen when God is getting ready to release the Israelites from the hand of Egypt. He's bringing them out. Egypt doesn't want to cooperate. And so God is going to go, and in the tenth and final plague, He says, I'm going to go, and I'm going to kill the firstborn of, of everybody there. But here's how you protect yourself. You slay a lamb. It's got to be spotless and all of that, but you've got to take that blood and you apply it to your doorpost. And when I come through, every house that that blood is applied to, I will pass over. And so God passes through Egypt to strike all the firstborn, and when he pulls up to the house of the Israelites that obeyed what was happening, he passed over them, and no harm befell them. They, didn't, they were not subject to the judgment that came from God. Now, this stresses something here to us, that it's not just that this Passover lamb existed, but it had to be slaved. No matter how perfect that the lamb was, it was of no sacrificial use if it wasn't slayed and its protective blood administered to the home. See how this is getting more clear? Because I can see the wheels are turning for a lot of you. Because you, you, you're going right back to the New Testament and we know how this works. And maybe some of you are seeing this for the first time, but this is how this happens. The next one was flipped. We get to the book of Leviticus. Now, Leviticus is a worship manual of sorts, and it contains instructions for administering sacrifice. It tells them how to do the feast and all of that, as well as many other things. And throughout the book, it focuses on one thing, the character of the lamb, the character of the sacrifice is coming. It states over 20 times that this offering must be without blemish. Leviticus 22, in the back half of verse 21, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. So what is God showing us about this lamb? He's showing us the character of it. It has to be without blemish. Has to be. Can't have spot, can't have wrinkle, has to be a perfect lamb. Again, the idea of the lamb is just, it's just growing. And we see it building over time. The next one, we flip over to Isaiah 53. Now this is probably the most famous of all the Messianic prophecies that are in the Bible. And I know you guys have read it a thousand times. But we're going to look at verses 6 through 8 here in Isaiah 53. And we're going to see something significant about the Lamb. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. Now, this shows monumental progression with the Lamb. And again, we read this all the time. We, we read this at least once a year, if not more. That we go back to this whole passage and the promise of the coming Messiah. But there's something so significant in here that we overlook. The Lamb up to this point has always been signified as an animal, a sacrifice that would be brought. But here we learn that the Lamb that God provides is a person. It's not just an animal. It's a person. This is huge. Now let's jump to the New Testament. And we learn something very incredible about the Lamb here. And this is where we always start. This is the mistake. We're into the sixth step of this. And we could have done more. But the sixth step of this, but this is where we typically begin. 
John 1 and 29, it says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. A few verses later in verse 35, again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold the Lamb of God. Now John the Baptist, this is who the John is, was a prophet that Jesus said was the greatest prophet of all, greater than even Moses. And what does he tell us about the Lamb? He tells us who it is, that he's here. This spotless, perfect lamb has arrived, and that lamb is Jesus. That he is the lamb, the one, the sacrifice. Now you see why it's important that we went back and did what we did, because this was not a New Testament concept. But because we start in the sixth step, we're on number six. In the sixth step, we did not build a foundation to get to that understanding. We miss out on so much of this, this, uh, this concept of progressive revelation. We miss out on so much of it because we just start in the New Testament. we got to start at the beginning. But let's move on from this. There's more to it than this. In Acts chapter 8, we see a story for Philip where he gets instructions from an angel of the Lord to help an Ethiopian eunuch who was highly ranked official under Queen Candace because he couldn't understand what he was reading, and he was reading Isaiah 53. Now, just so you know, a eunuch... Because again, most people don't really know what these things are or what these individuals were, but is a man who was castrated for the purpose of trusted servitude in a royal household. He was a servant of, of some royalty, and they were castrated so that they would not have any interest outside of their servanthood. Okay? Pretty significant, pretty, pretty, not something that any of us would probably want to be. But in Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 30, is where we pick this up. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I? Unless someone guides me. And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. It's going to sound familiar. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before his shear is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation, for his life is taken from the earth? So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does this prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now remember, the books of Acts had not been written. Some of the gospels might have been, but it hadn't. And in this case, if there was any doubt... Up to this point, who this Jesus person was, he was the lamb, and he is the promised Christ. And that's significant, and that's the next point, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah that they had been waiting for. Now, there are verses prior to this that we could have used, but this is significant because, again, this is after the fact. This is showing specifically, going right back to something we already talked about, connecting the dots back to Isaiah 53 about the Messiah. It's being reiterated here by Philip that Jesus is the Christ. But let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's keep going. 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 18. And what you're going to see here is the progressive revelation of the Lamb at its finest. And it's not necessarily super noticeable at first, but you've got to keep all the things we just talked about in mind as you read this. Knowing that you, verse 18... 
First Peter 1 and verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but without the, with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And so what we see Peter summarizing here is all the different aspects of the Lamb that we've seen previously. But then he adds a new truth which points us on to the consummation that's going to happen in the future. I mean, look at this stuff and how he broke down the necessity of the Lamb where he says it's not redeemed with corruptible things. And the provision, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world that God provided it early. The slaying that the precious blood of Christ, you don't get blood without the sacrifice. The character that he was without blemish or without spot. And ultimately that he was a person because it was the blood of Christ as of a lamb. You see this summary of progression, progressive revelation at his finest. But Peter lays the foundation of truth for the next revelation. In verse 21, who through him believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now this resurrection idea isn't a new concept, but in the Old Testament, it wasn't really widely known. It wasn't widely thought about. Not like we think about it. There wasn't a lot talked about in the Old Testament when dealing with resurrection. Which we, I mean, I, I know I've said that, but, but we've got to understand that this, this is kind of something new. But the resurrection gives us something that, that Peter is really trying to hammer home. It says that God raised him from the dead and gave him glory. What we see here is the concept of the resurrection that Peter used is that he's introducing the accompanying feature of this. And it's hope. So that your faith and hope are in God. Hope for what? What is this new hope? Well, let's look at Revelation 5. Revelation 5, starting in verse 6. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the thrones and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue, and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures, the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousands and thousands of thousands. A lot, lot there. Saying that with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing in every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and such are in the sea, and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Sitting on the throne forever 
endeavor. Revelation 22, verse 3. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. What do we see with the Lamb? He's on the throne. Revelation chapters 21 and 22 reveal the absolute climax of the whole biblical salvation history that's been going on. It's all coming to fruition. Now, I've said this before and I'll say it again. In order to understand the Old Testament, or excuse me, the book of Revelation, you need to have an understanding of the Old Testament because, I mean, there are 249 direct verses quoted in the book of Revelation from the Old Testament. But this hope is that the Lamb's on the throne. That, that when we die on this earth, they'll be resurrected with Him and spend eternity with Him because He is on the throne. He will rule and reign. And that is the hope that we talk about, that the Lamb is on the throne. But there's one more piece to this puzzle. Back up one chapter in Revelation 21 and verse 1. tells us something awesome. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There should be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There should be no more pain for the former things have passed away the kingship presented remarkably corresponds to the promise of the everlasting kingship in the covenants that were put together we'll talk about those more later but it's christ everlasting kingships that's the last piece that hope of glory that we have the last piece of the puzzle all but but you see how the lamb is shown all the way From the very beginning all the way throughout the end. This isn't a New Testament concept. If you just start in the New Testament, you're missing out on so much. When you put this string of revelations together, you see that even before creation, God knew that we would sin and that He'd send His Son who would spill His blood in substitutionary propitiation for our sins. And then He would conquer death through His resurrection and sit on the throne of heaven everlastingly where He is joined by saved sinners who will enjoy His presence forever. This amply demonstrates the inspiration of God's Word and the sheer beauty and genius of progressive revelation that's in it. It reflects God's gracious and redemptive activity all through history from beginning to end. It's motivated by His incomparable love for us and by His plan to exhibit His glory. This should give you an appreciation for this incredible book we call the Bible. That is not a book, but 66 books written by over 40 authors with over a 1,500-year span. And yet we see time and time again from beginning to end is consistent all the way through to show the hope of mankind and Jesus Christ and His redemptive work. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. We should rejoice every opportunity we have to read that Bible because it is not just what makes me feel better today. It is God's Word to us.
This thing is not written by man. It was written for man. So that we can understand it. So we can see what God's going to do in all of His greatness. Amen? Let's pray.